morning, everyone, and a very warm welcome to morning worship at Hillhead, wherever we are this morning. As you know, Katrina is on leave this weekend, so we're very pleased to be able to welcome our friend Graham Meeklejohn from the Scottish Baptist College to lead our worship this morning. You are very welcome, Graham. It's lovely to see you again. In the service, we'll also hear the voices of Grace, Sylvia and Holly, and our musicians this morning, and you've already heard both of them, Paul and Yang Yang. And in a moment or two, Benjamin and Bardia and their family will be lighting our candle. Then at 7pm, our evening reflection will be led by the Reverend Liz Johnston Blythe. At the end of this morning's service, though, instead of going into breakout rooms, there will be a short church meeting to ratify the in-principle decision we made at last month's church meeting. Please stay if you can. It shouldn't last more than 10 minutes, 15 at the very most. Thank you to everyone who has already made a donation to our Christian Aid Christmas Appeal via our Just Giving page. The current total is standing at £822.50, uh, but the page will remain open for another week. And so if you haven't had a chance to make your donation yet, there's still time to do that. Please remember to leave your name, though, because this time around, I need to know your name so that I can include you in the December issue of the Church magazine on our Christmas greetings page. Then, first, um, first of all, an email that I want you to look out for. Um, tomorrow, I'll be sending out an email about this year's Advent study group on WhatsApp. This was a group that worked really well last year, and Holly is organising this group again if you would like to take part, Holly wants me to let you know that she has books available and is even happy to deliver if that would be helpful. So have a look out for that email from me tomorrow with all the details of our Advent WhatsApp group. And then a lovely notice, congratulations to Dr. Beth, who is about to become Dr. Dr. Beth uh, because she passed her PhD VIVAT this week. Congratulations. Dr. Dr. Beth, it's wonderful news. I know, I know you hate this, but <laughs> we couldn't let it pass. So thank you. Next Sunday at 11 a.m., Katrina will lead worship for the first Sunday in Advent. And at 7 p.m., another old friend, Reverend David Sinclair, former minister of Wellington Church, will lead our evening reflection. Now, though, it's time for Benjamin and Bardia to light our candle. As we gather for worship, let us join together to become the body of Christ. Christ is the light that lights our way. May we glimpse Christ like this day. Good morning. It's really good to join with you uh, today. Um, this morning is Christ the King Sunday, uh, the last Sunday in the liturgical year before we begin Advent. Um, and to me, this raises the question, what is Christ the King over? Who is Christ the King? Not only would we say that Christ is our Lord and Saviour, but he's also King over all creation and King over all time and history. And so at the start of our time together, I want to read a few short verses from Psalm 36. It'll be verses five to nine, which I think speaks of this idea of God and his grandeur over all creation. Your love, Lord, reaches to the heavens. 
your faithfulness to the skies. Your righteousness is like the highest mountains, your justice like the great deep. You, Lord, preserve both people and animals. How priceless is your unfailing, unfailing love, O God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light.
one of the most important ideas in, in all of Christian theology is that God is our creator, as we've just sung about in the song. In fact, the very earliest of creeds, um, or since the very earliest of creeds, Christians have affirmed this as a foundational belief. For example, in the Apostles' Creed, we read right at the very beginning, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And this was carried forward into the Nicene Creed. It starts, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible. So as we come into a place of worship today, I want to share a prayer from Fiona, McDur- Fiona Murdoch uh, from Equal Congregations in Ireland. So let's pray together. God of the universe, we thank you for your many good gifts, for the beauty of creation and its rich and varied fruits, for clean water and fresh air, for food and shelter, animals and plants. Forgive us for the times we have taken the earth's resources for granted and wasted what you have given us. Transform our hearts and minds so that we would learn to care and share to touch the earth with gentleness and with love, respecting all living things. We pray for all those who suffer as a result of our waste, greed and indifference. And we pray that the day would come when everyone has enough food and clean water. Help us to respect the rights of all people and all species and help us to willingly share your gifts today and always. Amen. We continue together in the words of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.
did in Luke 12, verses 22 to 31, and Luke 14, verses 25 to 33. Then he said to, the, to his disciples, that is what I say to you, stop being anxious about your life as to what you will eat or about your body as to what you will wear. For the life is worse more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the revenge, they neither sow seed nor reap. They have neither barn nor storehouse. Yet God fed them. Are you not worth much more than birds? Who of you, by being anxious, can add a cubit to his life span? If therefore you can't do such a small things, why be anxious about remaining things? Consider how the lilies grow. They neither toil nor spin, but I tell you that not even Solomon in all his glory was arrayed as one of these. Now, if this is how God clothes the, vegeta the vegetation in the field that today exists and tomorrow is cast into an oven, how much more will be clothed you, you with little faith? So stop seeking what you will eat and what you will drink and stop being anxious suspense. For all of these are the things the nation of the world are eagerly pursuing, but your father knows you need these things. Instead, keep seeking his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Luke 14, 25 to 33. Now large crowds were traveling with him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he can't be my disciple. Whoever doesn't carry his tortured stake and come after me can't be my disciple. For example, who of you wanted to build a tower doesn't first sit down and calculate the expense to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, he might lay his foundation, but not be able to finish it. And all the onlookers would start to ridicule him, saying, this man started to build, but wasn't able to finish. Or what king marching out against another king in war doesn't first sit down and fake Council whether he's able with 10,000 troops to stand up to the one who comes against him with 20,000. 
if in fact he can do so, then why that one is yet far away, he sent out a body of ambassadors and sues for peace. In the same way, you may sure that no one of you who doesn't say goodbye to all his belongings can be my disciple. Many of you will know that uh, I studied my undergraduate degree at Glasgow Uni, and if we were in Hellhead this morning, then it would have been pretty close to where I had some of my lectures. Um, I remember one set of lectures in particular that I had uh, was in the Western Infirmary Lecture Theatre, or the Wilt, as it was uh, affectionately known. Um, for those of you that know where it is, it's it's down the Byers Road end of the Glasgow University campus, um, and when I was there, uh, just over 20 years ago, the, the Wolfson Medical Building wasn't there, but it, it's just beyond what is now the Wolfson Medical Building. Um, and I would have these lectures just after lunchtime. And I would normally have my lunch in the Glasgow Union. Again, if you know the, the layout, the, the Union's way over the other side of University Avenue. So I would um, have my lunch. I would be sitting in the Glasgow uh, Union, and then I'd realise I'd just have five minutes before this lecture, so I'd have to canter over the hill that is University Avenue down the other side um, into the, the Wilt. Now, I quite liked the lectures in the Wilt. Um, it was a nice lecture hall. It was um, warm. It was the, the seats were comfortable. And this was in stark contrast um, to many of my other lectures, which were in the, the main building of Glasgow University with their single glazed windows, which were always drafty. At the time that I was there, still wooden benches and wooden desks. So I quite liked it when I had these lectures in the Wilt. I have to say, though, that the benefits of the Wilt was also its downfall because this was first term of first year, newly into university, just after lunch, just having done a wee jog over University Avenue, it's slumping these comfortable seats. And I have to confess that on more than one occasion, my eyes um, did close um, during these lectures. And it was nothing to do with the lectures as such, um, just I would like to say the conditions that, that uh, found me in the Wilt during my first term of university. The lectures themselves um, was an introduction to Scottish Enlightenment, 
the philosophy of the Scottish Enlightenment. And if I'm honest, perhaps unsurprisingly, given that I had my eyes closed, I don't remember too much about those lectures. I do remember one lecture in particular, though, um, and it was on the philosophy of humour. Um, I don't remember the exact details, but um, I remember the crux of that lecture. And I'm not sure why I remember it as such. It might be because as a, as a fresh student, newly out of school, the idea that I could study the philosophy of humour was somewhat novel. It definitely wasn't uh, because of the lecturer who, though kind, very kindly, um, was neither the most charismatic or even ironically that funny. Um, but I do remember that the crux of the lecture on the philosophy of humour is that humour um, we laugh at the unexpectedness of humour. So, for example, if you think about slapstick comedy, it's the piano falling out of midair onto the cartoon character, um, or it's the, the ladder that spins round and hits the protagonist on the back of the head. It's, it's the unexpectedness of the events that causes us to laugh. And yes, we might become almost... Uh, we might almost come to expect the unexpected, but it's still something about um, the, the unexpected that makes us laugh. If you go to the other end of the comedic spectrum and you think about shock humour, um, you know, the comedians quite often will um, talk about taboo subjects or say things that you wouldn't say in normal conversation. And whether we agree with it or disagree with it, we almost have this sense that we laugh because it's disrupting the norm. It's what we don't expect. And so we have this reaction to laugh. So a very basic point is that one way of understanding humour is that it disrupts the norm. Recently, I've encountered, encountered a similar idea in a book by Stanley Hauervas, who is a theologian that I find fascinating and helpful in many respects. Um, Hauervas writes in this uh, book a chapter entitled How to Be Theologically Funny, a must read, I think, for any aspiring theologian. Um, and he identifies humour in much the same respects as this idea of disrupting the norm or being subversive. And he suggests that we should think about theology as humour, um, in, in the sense that at least when we come to think about theology or our Christian faith, we should also think about our faith as disrupting the norm, in the sense that we can be a prophetic voice for the world around us. He also thinks that humour, if it's defined as encountering the unexpected, is a way that we can help process the unexpected events in life. So it's one of the fundamental roles of jokes is to comprehend the absurdities of life. When we think about it, our lives are full of twists and turns, full of unexpected events. Often we face tough situations that come out of the blue. And in some ways, though it seems counterintuitive, there can be a way that humour can help us process the unexpected in a way that helps us to come to terms with what has occur occurred. And Hauervas makes the claim in a much more nuanced and depth way than I'm able to, to do today, but he says that in the same way our Christian faith can be used uh, as humour can, or can incorporate humour in a way to process 
these unexpected events. His final way of thinking about theology as humour is to draw from the works of Karl Barth. Karl Barth is a prolific theologian of the 20th century. And here, Hauerwas thinks it's clear that in Barth's writing, he communicates an absolute confidence in the providence of God. And, he, and Hauerwas writes that this meant that that Barth was so sure of the victory of Christ that he was free to enjoy the world. And in this sense, this is, is theology, is humour, the freedom to enjoy the world around us. There's such a certainty and confidence, even amongst difficult circumstances. In some ways, I want to say it's not unlike Proverbs 31, verse 25, which the amplified version of the Bible renders as she smiles at the future, knowing that she and her family are prepared. And it's really that last point that I want to think about a wee bit further today. Our sense of Christ's victory and God's providence can be almost a double-edged sword. For example, think about the two passages that we read today, and I hope that you might already have heard something of a tension within them. In Luke 12, we read that we're not to worry about what we eat or drink or even what to wear. You'll be glad that I didn't take that literally today. I had my clothes laid out ready well in advance. Um, but there's this sense that um, we're not to worry because our God in heaven knows and provides for what we need. You look at the creation around us and, and God provides for all of creation, for the birds of the field, the, plant, the plants around us. And so how much more will he provide for us? It's not uncommon to turn to these verses um, for comfort in difficult times. But just two chapters on in Luke 14, we read that only a fool doesn't plan ahead. No one starts a building project without surveying the needs of the project. No one begins something without counting the cost. It seems almost counterintuitive to this, don't worry about anything but also make sure that you plan ahead. Of course, a good exegete might resolve some of these tensions, might be able to interpret it in certain ways, thinking about the different contexts that they appeal to, the different circumstances that they're referring to. But I think that we would still find that there's an inherent tension that remains. As a di disciple of Christ, do we put all our worries um, about the future to one side? Or should we be sure that we plan ahead well? It's the challenge of thinking about do we achieve our goals through our own good planning or leave everything aside in the hope that God's providence will come through for us? Put in a slightly different light, perhaps, as we live out our Christian faith, are we personally respons responsible for building God's kingdom? Or do we simply sit back and let God establish his own kingdom? Or even more concisely, are we making the world a better place? Or is that God's job? A couple of weeks ago in uh, my creative missions class, I suggested to my students that they approach mission with a relaxed playfulness. I'll come back to why I use that term in a moment. But what I was wanting to communicate to them was um, 
that when we think about mission, we often talk in terms of results and outcomes. How many people responded to the message? How many people were they at their event? You might even talk about how many people were converted. And I was saying, I think it's actually unhealthy when mission comes from this drive for results or for outcomes. And I said that actually, when we come to mission, it's more about being faithful to God than it is thinking about the outcomes. And we can release ourselves from this pressure. We can be a little bit free to engage in mission more creatively. So I was hoping to communicate this sense of a relaxed playfulness approach to mission to help us think about mission more creatively. But as any good student does, um, one of them piped up and said, well, I've spent so long in a church trying to communicate the seriousness of mission. And in fact, the, the kinds of issues that we're dealing with with people that are on our doorsteps are quite serious issues. I'm not sure that I'm ready to flip them around and tell them that we should be approaching mission with a relaxed playfulness. Of course, I responded to say that's not exactly what I was trying to communicate. And of course, we should um, consider the seriousness of the issues that people are facing. And of course, mission is a serious issue. But I wanted to think a little bit more, a little bit deeper about this phrase, relaxed playfulness, because I still felt there was something of value within it. The phrase itself comes from a theologian called Charles Matthews, and he writes about political engagement. In the article he writes uh, about this phrase, relaxed playfulness, he's really thinking about how as Christians we can deal with those who think differently. On the one hand, he says, we can just ignore the differences. We can um, tolerate one, tolerate the differences, tolerate one another by keeping people at arm's length, as long as what I believe and what I do doesn't um, contradict what you think or come into conflict with what you think, as long as we can keep our own space and keep each other at arm's length, we can live in something of a peaceful coexistence. Essentially, everyone is free to do what they think is right, so long as there is no harm or restriction in others. It's actually the basis of our liberal democracy. But Matthews also suggests a different way. He says we can confront, confront differences, we can own them, we can acknowledge the differences. And perhaps through discussion and debate of the differences, we can ident identify some common aims or some shared goals, and we can work together towards those shared goals. And in some ways, he says, says these are in conflict with one another, but they're two different ways of how we deal with one another's differences. But Matthew himself wants to take a different approach. He says that there's another way that Christians can approach political engagement. And he thinks that we can approach it with this relaxed playfulness in a manner that releases Christians from the terrible presumption of acting as if they were the ultimate guardians of goodness in the world, as if they were God. And I think this is quite a profound change in thinking. Well, political engagement is often trying to control the world and dictate the outcomes and the direction of history. Christians can engage in politics and social issues with the knowledge that we are not arbiters of the course of history. We can release ourselves from the pressure 
that comes from thinking there is nothing more than what happens in the world. Of course, I think there's a danger here. Um, and this danger comes in two different ways. We can risk a certain carelessness um, that because we think God is responsible, that God provides for all, then he is responsible for relieving the suffering of those under duress in the world. And it's not our responsibility. Or it might cause a certain apathy, thinking that if the ultimate um, end of history is already determined, then how are we supposed to, uh, how are our actions meant to make any sort of difference? But I don't think that's really what Matthew intends. And he uses the example of nonviolent resistance. And he says, when you think about all the great political movements of nonviolent resistance, he says he, they've taken their lead from otherworldly, from a God-driven motivation. If you think about it, you wouldn't use nonviolence if, you were one, if success and outcomes was your only aim. If you really want to be successful in this world, then you use force and you use power, an exercise of power. But those who are engaged in nonviolent resistance take their motivation, take their um, direction from otherworldly, from godly motives. And so whenever Christians engage in the world, we start from a different perspective. While much political struggle comes out of an understanding that we're engaged in an ongoing fight to make the world a better place, on the other hand, Christians recognise that Christ's work is a finished work, that the kingdom is already here. Whether it's recognised or not, our ultimate destination is already secure. And so while politics and social engagement wrestles and struggles and labours under the idea that we as humans shoulder the responsibility to win the fight and create a perfect utopia by our own efforts, Christians, on the other hand, are engaged in faithful witness to the kingdom. And so we're as we are released from this responsibility, it allows us to engage in social change with a certain relaxed playfulness. I wonder how you are feeling post-COP26. I know as a church you were actively engaged with the conference and with issues of climate change. And I think as churches and as Christians, we have to be involved in these issues. We have to seek a fairer world and advocate for a world that cares for all of its inhabitants. But I want to use climate change and the environment as a way to illustrate what I think Matthews is trying to get at in this article. And there's two ways that I want to go about this. First, in terms of our motivation, I think Christians are not interested in climate change. And that might seem like an odd statement to make. But in some ways, it's a shame that it's taken climate change or a climate crisis for Christians to wake up to the fact that from the very beginning, we should have been caring for God's creation. In fact, whether there is a climate crisis or not, whether temperatures are rising or temperatures are falling, Christians should be engaged in caring for creation, making it fit for God's dwelling. While politicians and activists are trying to fix the problem out of self-preservation, 
Christians engage in the issue because the world is God's creation. And I think that actually brings a higher responsibility because we're not engaging with climate and the environment out of our own self-interest of making sure that uh, the world doesn't end and therefore we end, that we're scared about the planet dying or that we might end, but rather we stand up for creation in a more selfless manner because it's God's creation and it's God's chosen resting place. So rather than cause carelessness or apathy, I think this approach actually calls us to an even higher level of engagement. I think secondly, while activists and politicians aim at creating a perfect utopia free from detrimental human actions, Christians approach these issues with a sober reality that all are broken, that we are broken, that creation is subjected to frustration. And therefore, we can't create a perfect utopia by our own efforts. We don't act out of a vain hope of eventually creating a perfect world, but we act out of faith in God's love and his faithfulness to us. We aren't motivated by the end results, by whether the climate gets better or as it seems worse. And so we don't lose hope when outcomes go wrong or promises remain unfulfilled, but rather we maintain our course and continue to act out of faithfulness to God. Of course, some may say that is foolish to continue to act in faith while the world around us quite literally burns. But I think that's what Daniel did in Nebuchadnezzar's flames. He didn't give up what seemed like a losing battle, certain defeat, but he remained faithful to God, doing what he knew to be right, even in the face of that certain defeat. So when we think about COP26 and we ask ourselves the question, was it a success or was it a failure? In some regards, in a limited way, it doesn't matter because as churches and as Christians, we should keep doing what we know to be right, whether the world around us gets on board with that or not. We need to keep speaking up for God's creation and all the creatures within it. And so I think today, that's where I want to end up. As I mentioned at the beginning of the service, it's Christ the King Sunday, the end of the liturgical year before we begin Advent. And we really do believe that. Christ is King. His finished work on the cross established his kingdom. And we rest confident in that finished work living faithfully as a witness to the kingdom. And God is our creator and so sovereign over all. And so we can live in the confidence that we know the end point of history will be that all will return to their creator. So how do we keep good humour in light of difficult circumstances? How do we remain hopeful in face of disappointment and setbacks? We do so by approaching the world with a relaxed playfulness. It's neither carelessness nor apathy, but it's a recognition that we are not alone. On our own, as humans, we cannot fix the world. We cannot create that perfect utopia. But together, in Christ, with him as our king, 
we can remain faithful. Most of you will have heard me say before that my own personal prayers are sparked by what's happening around me in the moment. I don't have a particularly great attention span. I'm often not very good at it, but I try to be alert to what God would have me pray for the people I meet and the situations in the world that come into my mind through the day. 
Our prayers for others this morning look back over the last day or so of my life, who I've been speaking to or thinking about. And I encourage you as I speak to reflect yourselves on the last day or so of your life. What would God have you pray for the people and situations that you have encountered? Let us join together in our prayers for others. Yesterday morning, I woke up warm and cosy in my own bed. We remember all God's children who woke up far from home. For those in prison, for the homeless, for refugees and those who seek asylum. In the morning, I was chatting to a friend on Twitter about some of the challenges that we'd both faced as young people who didn't quite fit the mould of the evangelical church in the early 2000s. We remember all God's children who have felt excluded from the church because of who they are. And we join in God's anger at injustices that are perpetrated in God's name. George woke up and we had breakfast together. We give thanks for those in our lives who we love. And we remember all God's children who are lonely. Um, I drove up to Calendar to meet a friend. On my journey, I passed the Hydro, recently the venue for COP26. We remember all God's children whose lives are impacted by climate change and all those who fight for the concrete actions needed to avoid further catastrophe. Because my friend has been shielding during the pandemic, this was the first time we'd seen each other outside work for two years. We give thanks for friendships that can survive a global pandemic and for coming back together after time apart. We give thanks for scientists, for policymakers and for vaccinators that made it possible for us to be safer being together. We remember all God's children who are unable to access vaccines worldwide and for movements like COVAX working for global equitable access to COVID-19 vaccines. It was now about half four, so almost completely pitch black outside and I drove home again. I passed the hydro, now lit up in the colours of the trans pride flag to mark Transgender Day of Remembrance the day when we remember trans people who have died too soon. We remember all God's children made in God's image and resolve to be better at loving all of our siblings in Christ. I arrived home and I made dinner. I had a look at the news on my phone. We will all have seen different headlines over the past day or so. And we bring all of the news that we have seen before God, who is all-knowing, in the hope that God would teach us how to pray for all the situations that we know about in the world, which seems so complicated. After dinner, my neighbours, who are students, came down to uh, give us their mobile number and let us know that they were having a party. We remember all of God's children 
especially young people who've had to endure isolation and remote education during the COVID-19 pandemic. We pray for adequate mental health provision as we begin to understand the impact of lockdown on children and young people. My neighbours must have been enjoying themselves as the last text I sent to tell them to keep it down was about three o'clock this morning. I didn't sleep very well. We pray for all those who were awake with me last night for other more significant reasons. We remember all God's children who are sick or fearful or who wait for news that they dread. We pray that you would comfort them. This morning, I woke up tired and grumpy, needing a lot of caffeine. I had some breakfast and I looked at the prayer calendar that we use each week to guide our prayers for others. This week, BMS invites us to pray for their existing and emerging mission partners in Bangladesh, North Africa, Cambodia and India. We pray for the mission partners and for new Christians in these areas, that they may have access to the gospel in their own language and that the words of the scriptures would be both a challenge and a comfort to them. From the Baptist Union prayer calendar, we pray for our siblings in South Leith Baptist Church, Southside Christian Fellowship in Ayr, Springburn Baptist Church and St Andrew's Baptist Church. In our own congregation, we pray for the worship group and musicians, now present to us in recordings, but hoping to be able to make music together soon. We pray for Jean R, Sylvia and Norman, Ailey, John, Owen and Ethan, Joan R, Margaret S, Mary and Ian, Nula, Jonathan, Idris and Casper, Jennifer, Neil and Jensen. We remember all God's children, known and unknown to us, but all known to God and loved by God. Amen.
Let us end our service now with a short prayer of commissioning. Creator God, as we return now to our homes, workplaces and communities, may your spirit open our eyes anew to the vastness and splendour of your beauty all around us. May we hear and smell and see and touch and taste your glory evident in all of your creation. Above all, let us see your beauty even in the brokenness of our brothers and sisters, all of them created in your image and waiting to experience that redemption that comes only through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Send us now to faithfully love and serve you in the world around us. Amen.